0: Welcome to the Hammer Extractive Podcast. We are beginning the series on fiscal policies as it relates to mineral oil and gas industries. My guest today is uh, Keith Jeffries. Keith is a development macroeconomist with a wide range of experience in policy-related advisory work for governments and other institutions. He is currently advisor to the Ministry of Finance in Busan and previously held positions of Deputy Governor of the Botswana Reserve Bank. Keith also founded an EcoConsult, Botswana consultancy firm based in Botswana and has lectured at universities in Botswana and the UK. He has also undertaken extensive research and was a member of the Africa Economic Research Consortium. Keith, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extraordinary Podcast. I appreciate you taking time to speak with me.
1: Good morning, Sheila, happy to be here.
0: That's lovely. So I thought uh, as my first guest, you would help us provide context and just answer some more basic things that are not so obvious to a lay person. Can you just tell us what we mean by fiscal policy?
1: Well, fiscal policy um, to us macroeconomists really relates to all issues around the government budget. And uh, that really has three angles, um, the revenue side. So how, do, uh, how and where do governments uh, generate revenues whether it be through taxes or other forms of fiscal revenues, uh, the spending side. So what's the structure of government spending where financial resources directed?
0: So one of the challenges I always have with uh, speaking to learned people like yourself who are embedded in a subject is that you make the complex sound uh, easy. So I'm gonna try that question another way, which is what purpose do fiscal policies serve in a country's economy then?
1: Well, they serve many different purposes and, and of course, for for those of us who are in the policy space, um, you know part of it is about juggling those different purposes, because you may have different objectives which are perhaps in conflict, and so, you know, one has to reach a a balance. So on the revenue side. the the way in which governments raise revenues because there's a range of different sources they have different economic implications so um, you know the primary purpose of raising revenues is to finance government operations whether that be uh uh recurrent operations such as employing public sector employees or it might be uh investment operations such as building public sector infrastructure. Given that we're sort of also approaching this from the extractives perspective, the taxation of, of the mineral sector or the resources sector also has particular angles. And typically governments will look at uh, uh, taxing resource sectors um, but not in a way that provides a disincentive to investment and, and production. On the spending side, um, you know, whether government spends a lot of money on employing a huge workforce, that can also have economic effects. It's, it's you know, the, 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 the wage levels that government pays has an impact on the rest of the economy. Uh, government might compete for scarce skilled human resources um but uh, besides employing people government also provides social welfare pensions you know support for the poor um, it also is responsible for maintenance of typically a quite a large capital stock running hospitals running schools etc cetera, etc cetera. so provision of of uh, of public infrastructure is, is an important uh, part of uh, fiscal policy
0: Hmm. So uh, you you did well to uh, remind us that the focus, of course, is the uh, resource sector. So uh, I wanted to ask you, um, when you think then of the resource sectors relative to others, what is it about fiscal policies as relates to the resource sector that separates them Uh, as policy instruments from others in the fiscal space?
1: Yeah, so there are a a number of distinct characteristics of resources um, which uh, do make them distinct to economic activities more generally and end up with a a, a, usually a very specific fiscal regime for resource um, entities. So one is that um, mineral mineral resources, you know, broadly interpreted are by definition, not mobile. So, you know, if you've got a a deposit of copper or gold or oil or diamonds or gas sitting in the ground, it's there. And, um, you know, that's unlike, say, a garment factory, and uh, uh, an international company making garments can put that factory In many different places it could put it in Botswana or Bangladesh or 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 Mexico or wherever so many economic activities are 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 mobile, at least in terms of where the initial investment can take place and and indeed many are even mobile once the investments taking place and that the the, you know the operation can be moved so that distinguishes. Um, resource activity from from a lot of other economic activity in that by definition there's there's zero mobility of the resource itself now it doesn't mean that there's not mobility of resource companies because many resource entities will have a choice of um you know exploiting a a a, a, a gas deposit offshore in nigeria or a gas deposit somewhere else in the world so there are um there are mobility decisions to to make, but the the resources themselves are not mobile. So that affects how governments and resource investors um, uh, relate to each other. The second is that um, resources are often associated with what um, us economists call rent. And and rent, broadly speaking, is 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 a kind of economic surplus, which a resource generates over and above the over and above the costs of of production, and that rent is related to the physical nature of the of the deposit itself, and of course that varies incredibly, and it's. the the other factor that comes into the determination of rent is that most resources are traded globally and there are international markets. Um, It's a bit different with some other resources because they do vary a bit. Um, You know, oil from from Angola is not the same as oil from Saudi Arabia, but um, nevertheless, there are benchmark prices, whether it be Brent crude or, or WTI or, or whatever. Um, and although the price of most resources is set in global markets and is fairly uniform across the world, you know, net of transport costs may be, the costs of production vary enormously. So if you look at the, um, say a, a, a high cost, um, deep water offshore oil drilling operation might let's say have production costs of let's say $60 a barrel um, to get that crude into a ship or into an onshore storage uh, facility. Um, but that same crude or very similar crude drilled onshore in Saudi Arabia might have a production cost of $2 a barrel, but they both sell for the same price. You know, maybe they both sell current price of something like $90 a barrel. So the, the, um, the, the, the high cost offshore drilling operation will have a relatively low profit, uh, the, the difference between production costs and uh, the selling costs, but the very low cost Saudi onshore drilling operation will have enormously high profits. Um, and that difference is, as I say, what we call rent, and uh, that rent is, if you like, it's a it's a kind of supernormal profit, um, it's a bonus. Um, it's over and above the normal rate of profit that, that an investor would require to produce something. So the fact that mineral resources, all around the world have different costs of production, um, but are all sold at the global market price, it means that many mining operations benefit from mineral rent and these supernormal profits. So, to get back to fiscal policy, um, it's quite important to design a fiscal policy that, if you like, sort of best practice is that a very high proportion of that rent, which remember is supernormal profits or windfall profits, um, is taxed and would accrue to the government through one channel or another. Um, But you don't want to, so that might mean that the government aims to tax these excess profits or rents at quite a high rate, but you don't want to necessarily apply that to the normal profitability of a resource company, because then you're providing a disincentive to further exploration and and investment. Um, And and of course, the way that we economists see normal profits is that it provides the risk adjusted rate of return on capital, which is enough to encourage or stimulate investment in that uh, particular economic activity. So mining tax regimes, typically try and distinguish between uh, let me say a relatively low rate of tax on normal profits but a relatively high rate of tax on supernormal profits or, or mineral rents and these are quite difficult to design to get them to operate effectively because of course we're operating in an environment where information is in, in imperfect and typically the resource company has more information than the tax authority so there's all sorts of um, uh, there's all sorts of relationships going on which are important.
0: So on one level, you you started off by suggesting, well, you know the the three factors are mobility, the the scale of the deposit and and quality, and then the global market. But actually, in between all of that is a hell of a lot more complexity. And so what I wanted to understand, by Keith is, in your experience, how well uh, do, especially emerging markets governments, first understand this and strike the right balance between knowing that a company can always move and find deposits elsewhere in the world and that you know, their job is to attract investment in their own jurisdictions. How well it, uh, is th- this balance between the advantage that the deposit is not mobile uh, and the fact that you are nevertheless going to trade it in an open market and that the economics of every deposit varies and that, that translates into whether you have a super or a normal profit. Um,
1: I think there's there's a lot of variation in the degree to which this is understood. Um, and And the... One of the other important factors in terms of mining or fiscal policy towards mining or resource companies is that um, as with with all fiscal regimes, investors value stability and predictability and transparency. So um, a, a clear, transparent, stable fiscal regime has quite a lot of value. Um, because obviously, investors in resources or or in anything but you know focus on resources, often there can be quite a long payback period. They want to be sure that if they're going to put in a hefty investment, and many mining operations do have very high upfront capital costs, they want fiscal stability types of revenue generation, fiscal revenue generation, have different economic impacts. And um, it takes quite a high level of expertise to understand how these impact on mining operations and also how to make them work effectively. And, you know, to go back to your question, um, some countries have a higher level of understanding and get the balance right. Others have a lower level of understanding, or maybe they have you know, frequent changes of political power, um, new people come in, change the tax regime, and you end up having a, a an unstable uh, fiscal regime towards resource companies, which just adds to the riskiness from an investment perspective of going into that country. And then obviously higher risk, you know, what investors are interested in is risk-adjusted returns. And so higher risk means that, Um, they will uh, be looking for a higher return um, uh, on that investment, which would discourage investment.
0: Mm. So, uh, you made reference to uh, the Botswana diamond mines and the extent to which, historically, they have been enormously uh, profitable, in part because of, uh, first, the great level of production, and then just the cost of production relative to uh, the revenue. This suggests, of course, that um, quite apart from what you have already described in terms of how one would construct uh, a mineral fiscal regime that the element of the project cycle matters, Uh, which is to say, you know, the kind of fiscal regime that you impose at the start of a project Uh, and later on when it peaks in profitability and then when it it starts to diminish, varies. Am I correct? And if so, how you as economists do you advise governments to manage this uh, progression from early uh, no profit, middle, potential loss of profits, and then a decline due to the diminishing stock?
1: Um, Yeah, there's some um standard approaches so one is that um in mining it's often the case that uh resource investors are allowed accelerated uh, uh capital uh depreciation against tax so whereas in many industries um, uh, investors will only be able to write off their capital stock over a, rel- over a longer period of time in, in relation, which will be related to the lifespan of the equipment. In mining, it's often the case that um, capital write-offs are allowed <clears throat> um, uh, uh, pretty much as soon as they're made. So that means that the effectively that defers... The obligation to pay tax uh, into the future, um, because of the fact that uh, capital expenditure can be written off um, upfront, so that defers the tax liability, um, and so that that helps. Um, second, a second thing that <clears throat> something we use in Botswana um, is that we actually have um, what's called a variable rate. Um, income tax applicable to mining companies. So, um, you know, in a way it's a bit like the way that uh, um, uh, income taxes are applied to individuals in that those who earn more pay a higher rate of tax. So what happens in Botswana is the, the greater, the rate of profit, the higher is the tax rate. So that if you have a very, very profitable mining operation, or a very profitable stage in the life cycle of that mining operation, at that point, for that duration, you pay, you pay um, quite a high rate of tax. I think it goes up to, uh, you know, there's quite a clear formula. It's a very simple formula, actually. It's, it's very neat, and it's actually, it's published in the Income Tax Act, um, either in the Income Tax Act or, or the Mines and Minerals Act. Um, and it goes up to a peak rate of tax on profits, I think, of 55% at its maximum. But it kind of adjusts automatically to the profitability of the mining operation. So that when a mining operation is very profitable, it pays a high rate of tax. When it's less profitable, it pays a lower rate of tax. So the combination of the accelerated capital write-offs and the variable income tax rates provides Quite a high degree of uh, flexibility to accommodate the changing profitability over the life cycle Hmm. uh, that you you mentioned.
0: So the the, the good thing, uh, going back to the point you raised about the importance to investors of being cited of the level of risk, the important thing uh, with having this uh, stated variable tax is that the investor knows upfront what's going to happen as opposed to the investor assuming that there is a certain uh, tax regime only to have a change midstream. I, I guess that from uh, an investor's perspective would be deemed uh, you know, acceptable in the big scheme of things. Is, is that correct?
1: I think so, yes. I mean, again, looking at you know, the Botswana mining tax regime, it's not a low tax regime, but it is a stable tax regime, and I think that you know that that counts for a lot. And certainly, you know, the feedback one gets from uh, from actual or potential resource investors is, is that it's the it's the stability that counts rather than the the rate of tax. Obviously, a, a, a punitively high rate of tax would not encourage investment, but you know, a a a, mod, a moderately high rate of tax that is stable. Um, it doesn't discourage investment uh, whereas you can see in other countries and I, I won't name names but you know countries that um f- introduce frequent changes into their mining tax regimes you know maybe having um uh, you know deciding they 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 think they're not getting enough tax revenue from mining operations perhaps because they don't quite understand the the economics and financial aspects of mining and so they then decide no we need to have a very high royalty rate because it's you know it's easy to collect um um, but that then discourages investment and you know uh, 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 an investor may have come in on the expectation of one set of uh, fiscal rules and then um, it ends up after a couple of years or five years finding a different fiscal situation that it's very um very discouraging so I think the you know the fact that um uh in Botswana's case as I say it's not low tax but it's it's predictable and it's stable and I think another important aspect in the which is set out in the the relevant legislation is that um mining companies cannot negotiate favorable company specific deals there is some scope for varying the fiscal regime but interestingly it applies per mineral and not per company so the fiscal regime could be varied for let's say all copper miners um, but it couldn't be varied to benefit one copper mining company rather than another copper mining company. So it's very clear in the law that a company shouldn't bother to go to the, the relevant minister, whether it's the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Minerals, and try and negotiate a sort of sweetheart's tax deal, because the law doesn't accommodate that. The, the same tax deal applies to all companies mining a particular mineral, which I think um, is also critical, because you know, a, a, one copper mining company might come in, and it doesn't face the the risk that someone else is going to come in and get a bit better deal than they get. That's just not it's just not permitted. So I think that adds to the transparency and the stability.
0: Mm. I think that that is uh, quite important in terms also uh, of creating not just predictability but a level playing field and managing uh, expectations. I I imagine also uh, that it also reduces where anybody might want to go there, uh, a level of corruption where ministers begin to use these agreements or negotiation parties begin to use these uh, agreements to foster their own personal interests. And so by, you know, creating a very clear line of divide along minerals and not investors, you know, that puts that matter to rest. And I think uh, presumably it might also motivate, uh, you know, those in government to do the right thing because it's all about what the country gets. It's not about what can be negotiated between two people who happen to be sitting across the desk. Uh, yeah absolutely yeah and and I suppose if you think of people saying well Botswana is a good mining destination that as you rightly said might be an example to cite now I want to ask you in your experience as a researcher how unusual is that in uh, sub-Sahara
1: um I think it's it's quite unusual um it's you know and, and it's partly because um you know Botswana does have a, a particular history um the i mean as as you're well aware you know diamonds are the most valuable mineral and um uh, most of the diamonds are, are mined by Debswana which is a joint venture between government of Botswana and De Beers and that, that has been really the dominant mining relationship. And it has meant that government, and it has been a long-term relationship, but it has meant that there's been an incentive for both parties to invest heavily in maintaining that relationship. So, you know, government has, it sort of goes back to your earlier question about how much the governments understand. I think government does understand quite a lot about the the global diamond industry and diamond mining and uh, De Beers and that relationship. Uh, so it's meant that there has been uh, an incentive to invest heavily in understanding, but also into um, high quality negotiating capacity, mm. so that. Um, you know that's reduced the risks of very one sided um negotiations, so I think that you know we're in in other countries where you have maybe a wider range of minerals and a wider range of investors, it does make it a bit more difficult for governments to reach the same level of um understanding as as perhaps we've we we've had in Botswana but of course it doesn't alter the you know the the principles that it is worth investing in understanding how different resource markets and different types of mining operations operate and then um you know of course also in in Botswana we've had very stable governance Um, with relatively low turnover of ministers and and officials, which has also helped continuity and institutional knowledge. And I I think maybe that that doesn't apply so much in other countries. Um, So I think there are, you know, there are elements of these approaches, which you see Mm -hmm. elsewhere, um, but maybe not to the same extent where all these things come together. And I think you know the you know there is a risk of course of these relationships with resource investors um becoming one sided where the investor you know has the money for highly paid lawyers and um highly paid mining engineers et cetera et cetera which may put the 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 government at a at at a disadvantage um but it's worth it on the part of governments, I think investing in the capacity so that that uh, relationship is less one-sided. And if that means bringing in external experts to act on government's behalf, then I think uh, that's that's a very worthwhile investment. Mm.
0: So uh, I agree with you on the capacity. I have uh, often uh, uh, listened and spoken to uh, representatives of governments, especially in, in Africa, uh, bemoan in the lack of capacity and the lack of financial resourcefulness to procure expertise to help with negotiation, uh, you know, the, the modeling of uh, uh, project economics and so forth. And I have always said, look, think of it this way. It's an investment. You can't afford not to invest in skills because then everything else uh, goes downhill from there. So I, I think that it's, it, it is really an important thing. So I wanted to ask you something. So um, you've spoken about the different sources of revenue. We've got royalty, rent, tax, et cetera, et cetera. To, to what extent uh, do these differ from country to country, especially given that, to your point, when it comes to the revenue generation and the commodity market, you know you are dealing with the same world and therefore presumably from uh, an investor's perspective, the, the, the cake is the same. So, so how do they, these differ? And if they differ significantly, how do we justify the difference given that Ultimately, with the exception perhaps of royalty, you really are taxing based on what the market has the capacity to generate in terms of revenue.
1: Yeah, um, it, look, it, it varies from one market to another. So, um, the you know, and some and some markets are much more volatile than others. But of course, you know, as we know, with many resources prices do tend to uh change uh, considerably so you know at the moment you know if you look at oil Brent crude's up at about 95 dollars um but you know it's also been you know in the last decade um it's been down at 30 dollars so um there's huge variation in the type of uh economic returns to um mining and you know similarly with with copper prices they're strong at the moment but they've also been in in the doldrums um so that uh, does mean that um the fiscal regimes have to be flexible but it it also means that um an understanding of The both the short term and the long term dynamics of uh, markets are needed um, and how that interacts with the production side of things, where, of course, costs of production um, are much more stable. They don't vary anything like the same rate as as prices do. I think in our situation here in Botswana, diamonds, you know, the diamond market is, is an unusual one. Um, it's not, it, I think it's, it, it, it has its volatility, but it's, it's much more stable than many other markets. So in, in some senses, um, it's a more predictable market, although it's a somewhat opaque one. Um, but it doesn't have quite the level of volatility in terms of Profitability or loss-making for resource companies that, um, that that applies to other types of uh, resources, um, but it sort of you know it goes back to the point that you know governments need to invest in understanding the markets for the for the minerals or resources that their that their countries produce.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you remind me of one thing, you know, as someone who has been in the mining industry, uh, both f- uh, from the um, private sector, but also policy, I'm often uh, a little frustrated when people talk about the mining industry and try to remind them that, uh, it, you know, it, it's a term that belies reality, because really what you have is a copper, uh, industry. You have the diamond industry. You have the iron ore industry, and then you have the aluminum. And and that, if you really want to do uh, a good job of designing policies, you want to get to the level of understanding the peculiarities of these different commodities. Because if you just presume that you know there's a one size fits all, you often get it wrong. So. the the continuous reference you make to the diamond industry and the recognition of not just the peculiarities of the uh, Debswana deposits, but the peculiarities of uh, the rough diamond market is a good reminder, uh, I think, uh, Keith, that uh, a hell of a lot needs to go into designing uh, these policies than is sometimes the case. Let me ask you this. Of course, governments, uh, collect revenue uh, but then they have to manage the revenue should uh, governments change their expenditure policies based on the changes in the commodity markets and if not how do we ensure some stability of uh, government revenue despite the lack of or, or despite the volatility of the commodity
1: markets that drive that source of revenue? Yeah, look, I think this is an important part of the fiscal arrangements that surround resource um, uh, economies. But, and there's really two angles to it. One is that um, in the long-term, resource revenues are volatile because we're talking about non-renewable resources which will eventually be depleted. So there's, if you like the the intergenerational issue. How do we deal with the fact that we might be taxing copper production or oil production today, but in fifty years' time, it may well be that there's no production in, in a particular country or from a particular mine or deposit It, it, it may be depleted. Um, so there's the there's the long term uh, you know volatility is not. Maybe not the right word, but long-term variability, and the second is more in in the sense of what we understand by volatility, which is that that markets go up and down and possibly quite quite frequently. Um, so, but they both the response to both of those uh, variability issues is about. Um, Uh, Detaching spending from revenues, in other words, um, government spending, especially if if resource revenues form an important component of overall revenues, government spending should not be um, too closely tied to the timing of resource revenues. And so one approach is to at least have some kind of financial buffers so that if we if we're just looking at short term volatility so when the price of oil is high you know when when oil producers are getting 90 or 95 dollars a barrel then um their expenditure programs government expenditure programs should maybe be calibrated to revenues of let's say or price of say 70 dollars a barrel and the surplus should be put aside and this is a quite a typical type of fiscal rule or budgeting rule that um, oil producers in particular use was that they would make an assumption about uh, sort of medium-term oil price and calibrate their government spending to revenues that would be generated based on that oil price. And if there's a a surplus, it doesn't lead to higher spending. The surplus is saved. And of course, what that means is that if, if you do that, um when the oil if your if your budget is calibrated to a 70 oil price but it goes down to 50 then you can draw down on your surplus your rainy day fund or whatever you want to call it um to uh avoid having to make dramatic cuts in government spending which is often very very disruptive whether that be you know you can't pay civil servants or you have to put projects on hold or you can't employ your teachers or nurses or whatever. Mm. Um, so that's 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 pretty important in terms of having a fiscal policy that will save short-term surpluses and use them to finance short-term deficits and it, and it, and it to some extent insulates your spending from your revenues of course it takes a lot of political will but it's quite a common approach at least on paper if not necessarily in, in practice to stick to it because you know one of the political political economy problems is that you have to then be uh, you have to be willing to adhere to, to adhere to what we would call a soft budget constraint as opposed to a hard budget constraint so a hard budget constraint means that you can't spend money you don't have a soft budget constraint means that you don't spend money that you do have in other words if the oil price is 90 dollars, not 70 dollars you've got to impose a soft budget constraint of of 70 dollars and not spend that extra 20 and that's quite tough in political economy terms Hmm. the The other issue is more on the intergenerational side, which is that, you know, acknowledging that uh, mineral revenues won't last forever. Do you actually put money into some kind of long-term investment, whether that be um, financial assets or or a different type of long-term sovereign wealth fund? But the idea is that whatever you do, whether it's financial assets or other assets, you will generate a long-term income from those investments, which might go some way to replacing mineral revenues when the, the non-renewable resource is depleted. Hmm. Um, so that's, if you like, that's that's the second challenge. So, you, you know, the, the, the classic example is Norway, where they have this absolutely massive sovereign wealth fund built up on the basis of revenues from oil and gas. And um uh and, and the the surplus so the the returns on that investment are used to finance uh part of the government budget but you know it's so big that effectively it means that even when oil and gas run out um or or, or something changes you know or climate change and and uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction means that the oil industry or the gas industry doesn't have a future, um, there'll be a financial asset that can generate a return for the population of Norway. So mm. that's that's the, the second big, if you like, sort of investment issue that faces resource rich countries.
0: So really, just because you, you got a bonus, uh, don't go shopping. Uh, Definitely. Just, yeah, just, yeah. And, and so the yeah. tendency in some cases is to just uh, literally, go and blow it, and and yeah. then comes rainy day, and you have nothing. So yeah. really, it's about the, discipline.
1: Yeah, I think the you know the, the the guidance is, even if you get a bonus, don't go have a party.
0: Exactly right. So here's a final. I, I read an article you wrote some time ago, and and these situations may may not uh, pertain any longer, because I think it was probably ten years ago. You said mm. that. Uh, the practice in Botswana, in terms of uh, revenue expend, mineral revenue expenditure, is that it only goes to what you termed investments or development projects. But it, it wasn't that alone that interested me. It was displayed, but it was also that you said actually it's not a written policy per se; it's just a, a an expenditure habit, if you wish. That intrigued me because most countries have policies and then they don't adhere to them. Were you suggesting that Bolsonaro didn't have a policy but a habit it adhered to? And if so, where are we now? That's my Um, question
1: Yeah, it's okay. I think um, what I said or what I should have said is that it's a policy, but it's not a law. Uh So the policy is there that Um, mineral revenues, the, the, you know, the fiscal mineral revenues according to government would be only used for investment, but investment very broadly interpreted. So that could be investment, and I mean accumulation of assets. And that, as I say, is broadly interpreted, and it could mean the accumulation of human capital, so education spending um, was uh, a permitted um, use of mineral revenues or investment in physical assets, roads, pipelines, telecoms, etc., etc. Um, so accumulation of physical assets was permitted, or accumulation of financial assets, which is essentially investments uh, outside the country through something called the Pula Fund. So the 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 policy was that all mineral revenues should be used for accumulation of one of these three types of assets. Um, And in a way, it addresses the point I made earlier that um, these assets, the, the hope was or the hope is that they will generate future economic returns when minerals are depleted. And the counterpart is that mineral revenues would not be used to pay for recurrent expenditure, such as the, you know, the general salaries of civil service or social welfare, et cetera, et cetera, those, are, those other recurrent expenditures. And this is apart, of course, from the salaries of teachers and health workers, which are classed as investment. Um, that those other recurrent expenditures had to be funded from other sources of revenue, whether it be income tax or VAT or, 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 or whatever. Um, and it's a, uh, a policy or a guideline. We have something called the Sustainable Budgeting Index, which actually measures how, wh- whether that's, uh, um, a, whether that policy is being adhered to But it's not laid out in any law. So it's Mm -hmm. not a statutory rule, but it is a policy. Let me call it a policy guideline. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's, yeah, it has been largely adhered to. There have been one or two years of exceptional shocks where it was not adhered to, but in general, over a a period of several decades, it has been adhered to. Um, So, you know, I think it works because we have a um, quite a strong professional technocratic um, uh, public administration, um, and although I say it's it's not in law, we you know we have rule of law or, or, or rule of policy, let's say, um, whereby you know it it means something to ad- adhere to policies that have been officially adopted and, and consequently um, uh, people will not willingly breach uh, agreed policies. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's uh, I, I think, though, you know, if I was advising a country um, maybe uh approaching this for the first time I wouldn't necessarily say this is the best approach I think it works in the Botswana environment but it's you know that's quite a stable in it's quite a stable environment in public administration and public finance terms I do think there might well be advantages in actually enshrining this in law Um, you know maybe with some escape clauses for exceptional circumstances but I think that you know, if you're approaching it from, from from the beginning, from ground zero, if you like, um, you might not have the institutional stability um, or public finance capacity that you could rely on to stick to something that's just a policy or a guideline rather than a law. So, you know, the fact that the, uh, the, the, The policy guideline has been adhered to in Botswana doesn't necessarily mean it would be adhered to in different circumstances.
0: Mm, I suppose you're right. Well, uh, Keith, thank you very much uh, for your time. And I wish you and your colleagues at finance well. I think, uh, certainly, as a country with very limited mineral resources, we are indebted to that level of physical uh, discipline. Thank you for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive podcast.
1: Thank you, Sheila. Uh, I've enjoyed it and um, look forward to seeing you before too long.